that does require waiting until we see the whole picture. Um, and what that saves us from is creating a story about what's going on that we could really convince ourselves that we understand what's going on because we've, we've jumped to some conclusions and we've created a story that we could make a case for in a court of law, you know, um, but it might be really wrong. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Here we are at the Chinese New Year, Year of the Earth Pig. I know absolutely nothing about Chinese astrology, other than that I see animals arranged on placemats in Chinese restaurants here in the United States. And it's easy to read our own stories into the rich symbology of the Chinese 60-year cycle of elements and animals. I'm completely unqualified to jump in with any kind of fortune cookie-like prognostication of what's coming in the new year. As I suspect, how the year unfolds has more to do with our intentions and moment-to-moment actions than it does with the influence of heavenly animals and the calculus of the stems and branches. It's my suspicion that at the beginning of the year, or really at the beginning of any enterprise, whether it's a business, a marriage, course of study, maybe a new practice, really anything that unfolds over seasons, we are best guided by simple touchstones of intention. Something that we can come back to time and time again, especially after we've failed at what we've set out to do. Because while those devices that we hold in the palms of our hand or wear on our wrist are getting really good at measuring and gamifying our lives, Life is not about a streak of days of doing a certain thing, and it's not about ticking the boxes on a particular set of measurable metrics. Our progress comes more from when we failed, hit unseen obstacles, or been thrown off course with life's unpredictable turn of events. This is where I find a few simple words of intention can be really helpful. Touchstones that we can return to when blown off course, something that can help us know where our true north lies. I've found that three words of intention, three words that I can come back to as a reminder, some qualities that I'd like to see show up in my life are helpful at the beginning of a year. This doesn't have to be elaborate. In fact, it can fit on a post-it note, which is actually a good place to write this stuff down. For me, in the coming year, I'm looking to develop the qualities of patience, gratitude, and simplicity. These are the touchstones I'm sure to fail at on a regular basis, but I suspect that any movement I can make in the direction of these three qualities will have been worth the effort. And I'd rather rely on my own chart and compass than the fiddical predilections of heaven. I got a conversation with Sharon Weizenbaum coming up today. Those of you that have requested an episode with her, this is it. But before that, just a few things you might be interested in, especially if you practice herbal medicine. You've heard me mention in other episodes that the author of the Eastland Press book, Dr. Yu Guojun, will be at the Shennong Society Conference in New York City on March the 9th. Hey, he's also going to be teaching a one-day class at PCOM on March the 10th. It's on ministerial fire. Mayway Herbs is dedicated to the ongoing education of herbalists and a proud sponsor of this Shenlong Society event. After the weekend in New York, Dr. Yu heads up to Amherst, 
where he'll be doing a three-day seminar at Sharon's White Pine Institute. And if you happen to be on the West Coast, Dr. Yu will be in Seattle, March 2nd and 3rd at the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine, where he will be talking about learning from clinical errors. Oh boy, I suspect we all know something about that. If you're an herbalist and you've not read Eastland Press's A Walk Along the River, well, you're missing out on one of the best books in English on Chinese herbal medicine. I can't recommend this book enough. And get this, volume two is coming out really soon. Way back in March of 2017, geological episode number three, I spoke with Michael Fitzgerald, who will be the translator for Dr. Yu in these events. You might want to check out that podcast for a glimpse at the methods of this modern master. Hey, speaking of herbs, Golden Needle Online, in addition to supplying you with a wide variety of needles and other clinical supplies, also offers patient herbal fulfillment services. If you don't want to stock herbs, or if there's a special formulation that you want to give a patient, but you don't have it in stock, then you can have Golden Needle Online create and ship this formula for you. You get to choose the markup on the herbs, and the markup is given to you as a credit in future purchases. It's really simple. You log on to the patient fulfillment portion of the Golden Needle online website, set up your patient's contact information in the formulation you want them to have, along with the dosing instructions. Once you do that, your patient will receive an email that allows them to log on to Golden Needle site, pay for the herbs, and that's that. Your patient's herbs will wing their way home to your patient for a $5 shipping fee. You don't even have to mess with sales tax. So whether you're looking to simplify your herbal pharmacy or just have a special order that you want made up from herbs that you don't usually stock, Golden Needle Online's herbal fulfillment service can make your life a lot simpler for you. Visit the patient fulfillment portion of Golden Needle's website to get started with this. I've got a short and amazing clinical story for you from Simon Feeney of Empirical Medicine. Simon's company makes classical herbal formulas using classic preparation methods. And as ever, thanks for listening to the podcast, friends. I hope that you enjoy today's conversation. So I had this patient once that I didn't even know had schizophrenia. I'd been treating her for years, but just didn't know. She was also the type of patient that was obsessed with every instruction I gave her. She needed to do it just like I said. Now, of course, I love those patients because at our clinic, we always dispense herbs as close as possible to the original instructions of each formula. The reason we do this is because the different ways of administering a formula has different actions on the body and mind in the same way as each herb does. So back to that patient. After the intake, I concluded that she needed by her dihuang tongue. So I told her take the bai her, steep it in spring water overnight, remove the herb, cook the fresh xing di huang, etc, etc. A week later and she returns. Now typically she's super early and always looking quite stressed, but this week she arrived on time and she seemed calm. Not thinking too much about it, I, I led her into the room and asked how she was going. She leaned in towards me and said, Simon, the voices have gone. Shocked by this, we went together through the fact that she had actually been suffering from schizophrenia for decades. So tell me what happened, I said. She said, well, I did everything like you told me. I soaked the by her, etc., etc. 
After that, I started to drink the first dose, and as I drank, half the glass, silence. The voices just stopped, and they haven't come back. For me, this is an example of original administration at its finest, and this is at the very heart of what we do at Empirical Health. We make all our formulas to the exacting instructions of the original texts, in the hope that practitioners and patients alike will benefit from the legacy of our medicine now and into the future. We pride ourselves on sourcing the very finest quality herbs. We hope that our efforts will inspire and enable practitioners to practice this medicine with the knowledge of the past as a guide into the future. You can find more of Empirical Health's unique products at www.empiricalhealthshop.com.au My guest today is Sharon Weisenbaum. Hey, Sharon. Hi, Michael. Delighted to have you here on the podcast. I am so happy to be here. How long have you been doing Chinese medicine now? Wow. Well, I graduated from acupuncture school in 1983. So where does that put us? It's at least 35 years from the time I started practicing. Whatever drew you to this stuff? I mean, back in 19, early 1980s, it, it's not exactly like, you know, you opened up a magazine or something and it said, hey, you know, acupuncture school. What drew you in? Well, I was quite young. I was in my early 20s and I was kind of a hippie and I loved herbs and knew how to identify lots of herbs in New England. And I went to a weekend workshop with uh, Susan Weed and Billy Potts in the Catskills. There were lots of different workshops at the weekend. You know, we were up at their farm and camping in the woods and taking different workshops. And there was a workshop at that weekend by Arya Nielsen, who had just graduated from the first class at the New England School of Acupuncture. And I just had never heard of Chinese medicine before. I was, you know, thinking about Western herbalism and midwifery. And Arya gave this little workshop. We were sitting on logs in the woods. And Arya just said, you know, if it's cold, you warm it up. If it's hot, you cool it down. If there's too much you drain it, and if there's not enough, you fill it. And here's how you can tell if it's cold or hot or weak or strong. You know, and she talked about the signs and symptoms, and I was just hooked. I just thought, this is so beautiful and makes so much sense. And I was in the next class at the New England School of Acupuncture. You know, still at that point, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. Like, I didn't have an idea, like, I want this to be my career. I was just super interested. And plus, it was uh, a much shorter program than it is today. And also, I think my whole education cost about $2,400. Um, you know, so <laughs> it, it would sort of be something you were interested in that you weren't sure whether you wanted to pursue it or not, which isn't, which isn't the case today. I love what 
you're saying about out there in the Catskills and here's Aria Nielsen and, and, and she just lays it out, right? She lays out some of the really basic principles that we all use. We all use them regardless of what stream we follow. There it is. There's some basics. And you saw, wow, that is elegant, isn't it? Yeah. And off you went. Yeah, you know, it's so cool because back in those days, you could just follow it because you were interested. It wasn't a giant investment of time or money. Yes. Okay, so how long were the programs in those days? It was a little under two years. And it was with Ted Kapchuk and Dr. So and some other teachers, um, Peter Velasquez, and even um, Dan Bensky came and taught some um, he was just starting his work with cranial sacral and taught us about that while we were in school. And some you know, more recent graduates taught us things like point location. But our main teachers were Ted Kapchuk and Dr. So. When you got out of school, were you ready to do this stuff? What did you do? I, mean, I know a lot of people these days, they talk about they get out of school and they don't know what to do. Where were you when you first got out? Yeah, well, I immediately moved to Western Massachusetts. And and I moved here because it's really incredibly beautiful, rural area. But at the same time, it was close enough to Boston that I could go back and study with my teachers. And then and actually in my second year, Kiko Matsumoto arrived and was teaching at the school. And I ended up following her for years, and I went back and did clinic with Peter Velasquez. I really didn't feel ready and wanted to continue my studies. I mean, I guess I still feel that way. I really wanted to keep going. Um, at the same time, I think there was a, a kind of chutzpah that was there, and it was you know, I just was so interested and curious about it. I just couldn't wait to try it on people, you know. So immediately I opened up a practice and friends would tell me like, oh, I've got headaches. And I would just be like, you should come to me. And uh, and I couldn't wait to start practicing. So I just jumped right in because of that, that urge to see how it works. You know, my suspicion is that urge to see how it works is partly what keeps us engaged and, I mean, like really engaged, right? Because it's one thing to have someone come in with headaches and we go, oh yeah, I know a protocol for headaches. But that's, but that's not the same as doing medicine from the point of view of, oh, I wonder what that actually is. Mm-hmm. So headaches, it's not that it's a protocol, it's even things that are simple, you know, there is that sense of, gosh, what? is this? I mean, what actually is this? Mm-hmm. Right. I think you're describing um, a sort of driving curiosity about understanding things and, you know, why, why are they getting this headache and how do I apply these principles that I've learned in school? And of course, failing a lot, always having that question, like, why didn't this work? You know, I learned it in school. I think I'm doing it right, but it didn't work. And really being driven to understand the medicine more and more deeply as we go along, coming up against things that this didn't work the way they said it was going to work. So what am I missing? And always there was an assumption that it's not the medicine that's at fault, 
you know, it's my, it's my, I'm not understanding it deeply enough. So that, that was sort of a principle of mine. So that kept me wanting to go deeper and deeper into it. So not giving up on the medicine and also not giving up on myself, you know, just not leaving it as I'm not very good at this, but really having it be a, an invitation into deeper study and contemplation. We in this society of ours are rewarded for our successes, you know, the gold stars and the, you know, 100% and, you know, all that stuff. And yet, when it comes to learning medicine and practicing medicine, it is fraught with failure. There's no way around it. It's one of our teachers in a way. How do you sort of keep your mind and heart together in the midst of things that are not working? You think you know what you're doing. You want to be of service. But sometimes things just go really sideways. How do you stay present and, and take that and use it in a way to learn? There's a couple of answers to that question. And I, I do feel at this point in my career, I'm 62 years old, I'm very content in my practice without a lot of emotional ups and downs. So I do feel like there's ways I've learned to work with that. And, you know, it took me a long time to realize that, that there was something wrong with TCM as it was taught to me. You know, that there's a level to which it's unworkable. And then to, you know, and that kind of marked my interest in classic formulas and where that's taken me you know so and the importance of that is to realize it it wasn't my fault there was something sort of innately wrong with the way that modern chinese medicine was organized and that made me want to go more deeply into uh, studying not just classic formulas but a classic view of the human body and of diagnosis and treatment, which increased my effectiveness in uh, multiple ways. I guess part of what I'm saying is just first lifting it off of me, you know, that it's not my fault. I'm not a failure, you know, that there's, there's things that I don't understand yet. And so, you know, again, it's that invitation. Another part of it is that I've come to really shift my view of what my job is in the clinic and really have come to a really solid foundation that my only job in the clinic um, and really in my life in general is to enjoy being myself. That's my only job. So my job isn't to make somebody better. It's not to, you know, fulfill their wishes um, you know, what they want to get out of the session with acupuncture and herbs. That might seem really strange, but what does it mean to enjoy being me? I love solving puzzles and I'm really curious and it's really fun to interact with people and have the chance to apply this medicine. And so it's really my nature to want to help people. It's not my 
job. So I really go into clinic with that foundational intention, like, how can I go into clinic today and enjoy being me? If you look at it that way, there actually is no failure that if my job is to enjoy being me, then that's it. And the kind of paradox is that when I go into clinic with that attitude, there's there, there's such a relaxation that happens in me that allows for my curiosity to be there. It really, my, my psyche isn't really clouded with anxiety over whether I'm going to fail or succeed. And that frees up a lot of intelligence. And it gives me a lot of access to my resources, you know, the resources from the studying that I've done and my creativity. And it also helps with my connection with the patient. You know, the paradox is with that when, when that's my only intention to enjoy being me, and I trust that I'm a compassionate, curious, engaged human being, then my, my successes are really increased by a lot. There's that aspect of it when you know, when something doesn't work the way you would have liked it to work and the way the patient would have liked it to work, there, there's sort of that feeling like I, it's out of my hands. Like all I can really do is show up with the best of myself and do the best job that I can and then allow the rest of it to be out of your hands. You know, we can't really control we can't make it be that every person that comes to us that we're going to have remarkable successes. And so kind of grounding in that that feeling that my only job is to enjoy being myself really frees up that kind of letting go of things that that don't work. And and I think also it frees up a, a feeling of um partnership with the patient you know, I'm going to do the best that I can. And will you join me with that? And what I found is a lot of patients, you know, like say they come in looking for help from something like headaches and you diagnose and you give them a formula and like the next week they come in and like, no, I didn't really feel anything. Or even it gave me some digestive upset. Um, what I found is that what patients really appreciate is when you don't give up on them and you really are like okay huh that's new information that that didn't work so I can integrate that information now into my next step and I'm not going to give up on you you know so if you want to keep on um, sticking with me let's try to get to the root of this and that's such a relief for patients when they're faced with our anxieties and our feelings of failure, that's kind of a burden for patients. Yeah, I've seen something similar. And there's certainly times where I'm thinking, what is this person doing here with me? Because I'm not getting anywhere. And there's times I'll sit down and have a conversation with them about, well, what, what are you getting here? How is this helpful? Because I need to know their side of it. Because sometimes I'm looking at it from my side and thinking they really need to find someone who can help them more. And they say, and they actually come back and say, well, actually, you've helped me more than anybody else has. I know we haven't gotten to the bottom of it yet, but you don't give up on me. Man, that really rocks me back on my heel sometimes. 
because I'm doing the best I can. I don't have it dialed in yet. But like you were saying, sometimes it's it's not that the medicine can't do it. It's that I don't know how to do it with the medicine yet. And and our patients are truly incredible teachers and sometimes patient teachers that way. I think the other thing sometimes that shows up, you know, you're talking about you know, this aspect of not knowing, being able to be inquisitive in the moment with with what comes up in clinic. And so often with medicine, we're supposed to know. I'm using air quotes around no. There's this whole evidence-based thing. There's the idea that the doctor knows and the patient doesn't. And if the doctor doesn't know, then, well, obviously, they're not a good doctor. But for so many situations, especially the kind that bring patients through our doors, if there was, if there was something that would have handled it, they would have already had it handled by now. And so being able to hang in that place of not knowing, but I'm back to the basic principles. I, I, I can just imagine you as a young hippie girl hanging out with Ari and get, you know, getting this transmission of some very basic principles <laughs> that have gone with you for all these years, you know, into deeper and deeper nuance. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the other thing that I heard you say, and I just I want to comment on this. I think it's it's germane and maybe especially to people that are just starting out. This thing about being who we are in the moments of working with our patients. And and if the kind of person that you are is genuinely curious and inquisitive and wanting to be of service, if that's genuinely who you are, that might just be enough to bring to it. You know, on the other hand, if if you're looking to make yourself feel good because of the results your patients get, you're probably in for a lot of trouble. Yes, that's really right. And I suspect that's something that all of us have to walk through at one point or another in our career. Yes, I think that it is. I think, you know, we can't help it when we're young to come in feeling like by helping all these people, I'm going to feel so good about myself. And we're really in for a, an emotional roller coaster. We really need to step off of that um, because, you know, not only is it painful for us, it's also, it really inhibits our ability to be as good as we can be. And I love that you touched on this idea of, of not knowing um, increasing our capacity to live in that place like I don't know yet it's not clear yet and part of what I teach in my graduate mentorship program is the uh, diagnostic method where we look at each sign or symptom for only what it tells us for sure you know without thinking what does it mean, you know, without extrapolating from it, what does it mean? And just look at each sign and symptom for what it shows us for sure, with the idea that the diagnosis is something that's actually actually going to reveal itself to us. It's not something we have to figure out. It's going to reveal itself to us. And that does require waiting until we see the whole picture. Um, and what that saves us from is creating a story about what's going on that we could really convince ourselves that we understand what's going on because we've we've jumped to some conclusions and we've created a story that we could make a case for in a court of law, you know, um, but it might be really wrong. We're really saved if we 
if we have that capacity to let it be and not know for a little bit until it reveals itself, which it will, then we we save ourselves a lot of uh, missteps and going down the wrong pathway. So it's also something I, I have found that's really important is, you know, expanding my capacity to not know yet, to not see it clearly yet until it, oh, I get it. I see it. I know what to do. You know, and that's such a great feeling, you know, when it's all, it's very, very clear and obvious to you. You just know exactly what to do. And that can take some time. Yeah, some patience. It's been years, but I can remember being in Chinese medicine school. And of course, you've got to write down your diagnosis because that's that's part of the way that you learn. I think it's easy to get in the habit of thinking, oh man, I should have this dialed in within the first 30 minutes, right? Because I got to write this diagnosis down on a line here. It fits with my experience that I get a glimpse I think it might be this, or it could be that. Well, there's this other weirdo sign over here. I don't know what to do with that. You know, I can either ignore it in service of some confirmation bias, because I've got a story in my head about what I think it is, or I can hang out with a bit of ambiguity. I think I'm seeing some things somewhat clearly, but then there's these things that I know I don't see clearly, and, and being able to kind of hold those at the same time. Uh, you know, I like your idea that it, in, in time it reveals itself, and often through treatment it reveals itself. I had a patient the other day, I'm thinking, is it, well, I'm using the SAM acupuncture quite a bit, and I'm thinking, I think it's a deficiency of liver. And uh, so I, I tonify the liver, and then later I, I get to thinking about some things that Toby had said, and I, and, and I was thinking, you know what, I think I just tonified an excess. <laughs> I'm going to find out when he comes back next week based on the results. And sometimes that is, you know, mistreatment is part of the way that we clarify. You know, if you go really strongly in one direction, you're probably going to get a result. If it's, if it's helpful, well, that's helpful, you, and you went in the right direction. So lucky you that time. Sometimes you get feedback that lets you know that was completely wrong. And the good news about that is, we'll just go in the other direction. You know, if we get all tied up in a knot about being a failure when something doesn't go the right way, we aren't really available for the opportunity that mistake offers us in terms of learning more about the patient. So, you know, sort of working with our own minds in that way is is so important. And it also makes me think of um, Dr. Yu Guozhen, who wrote the book, A Walk Along the River, in that book, he writes a lot of cases where his own mistakes or mistakes of other doctors were taken into account as part of how he then diagnosed um, the patient. And he's actually coming here to teach in March, and he's going to spend a whole day on, you know, learning from mistaken treatments, which I just love. It's it's part of the path is to to not have clarity, but to take a step to the best of our ability anyway, and then see what happens. And, you know, with always keeping in mind the safety of the patient, but at the same time being willing to take a step and then watching what happens and learning 
from that. And of course, it's always a changing picture. So there's not really, oh, I finally figured it out. And then it remains, so I cured it and they're gone. The treatment takes a while. And as people progress in becoming more balanced, the, the picture is constantly changing. So our, our diagnosis is constantly being adjusted. You know, so it's a moving a moving terrain all the time, and it's a dance that we do with it. It is a moving terrain, and I don't know about you, I tend to be lazy, and when people start getting better and they're on a particular trajectory, I mean, there's times I've kind of patted myself on the back and go, okay, well, we've kind of got that handled. We're just going to go this way. Everything's going to be fine. Sometimes they're only going in that sort of up into the right direction for a piece of time and then something else arises that needs to be paid attention to. And if if we go to sleep and pat ourselves on the back and go, well, I got that handle, you know, dust off your hands, that wasn't too bad. Sometimes the other things will arise and we will miss it until it really gets bad. These days, I would say I am never completely optimistic when I'm treating patients. I am cautiously optimistic at times. But even when it's going well, I, I think that's not a good time to sort of take your foot off the gas. You mean take your foot off the gas in terms of um, kind of getting sleepy and giving them the same formula over and over again? Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's really um, part of it to come in fresh every time and really do a whole fresh diagnosis every time. It is a temptation to get sleepy. And uh, I'm sure it is for everybody and something we all sort of fall into. But um, it's more fun for me to come in fresh every time. Since it's all about enjoying being me, then having fun is really important. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was about to ask you, how do you keep yourself fresh and awake? But if you're just coming in being you having a good time, that's that sounds like it's plenty to keep you fresh and awake. Yeah, I think part of that sleepiness that comes in is when when some kind of burdensome thought has come in, like, oh, it's my job to figure this out. Yeah, so I think it is partly my 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 mandate to enjoy being me that that really helps keep it fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I want to come back to this because there is a a tacit agreement between patient and practitioner that it is our job to figure it out. It is our job to help them. And I think we take that side of the agreement very seriously, all of us that are practicing, or we wouldn't be practicing. So how do you balance the, I'm enjoying being me with, yeah, there's an agreement here that I'm, I'm here to, to help you. How do you balance that stuff out? Yeah, it does seem like a bit of a contradiction, but I've actually told some of my patients that, you know, that this is, I I see this as my job, which it feels nice to them that I'm enjoying being there and that I'm engaged. It wouldn't feel good in my heart if I, you know, dropped the ball on them. And so I think that it's not a contradiction at all. You know, what feels good is to create this space and the, you know where I can work and protect that space and engage in it with all of me 
I think, you know, maybe I'm not explicit about it with my patients, but I think everybody feels it. And so, yeah, I don't think it's a, it's a contradiction. You know, one of the, the things I love about Chinese medicine is that it is so full of things that at one level, you look at it and you go contradiction and you look at it from another perspective and you just see different aspects of mm-hmm. the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, I know in my practice, there was a there was a point I went through, it was a few years ago actually, where I'm thinking, I wonder if my patients feel like I'm taking this seriously enough because there's often a fair amount of laughter in the treatment room. I tend to be somewhat lighthearted in the way that I go about life. Not not that I don't take things seriously, I do, but I I tend to try to have a glad heart about things. And I bring that into my practice. And there was a certain point where I was thinking, should I be more serious? I thought, well, I don't think that I would enjoy my day if I was trying to be someone other than who I was. And and does it have to be a, a contradiction to be serious and having, you know, being light and having a good time? It's kind of what we learn about yin yang, you know, that when they're polarized, polarized like this or that, you're either lighthearted or you're serious, that that's a yin yang separation. And really, we can bring those two things together. And, you know, how can you be really serious if your heart isn't light? How could you even be playful if you weren't also taking it seriously? You know, those two things, they really need to go together. And it's really a sort of integration of of yin and yang. And having to pick those sides is kind of artificial. I think our Western medicine perspective will usually pick the side of seriousness. I know for myself, not so much these days, but certainly starting out, I felt like I needed to sort of cozy up to the Western medicine model to be accepted. To, I mean, to feel like I was uh, competent as a practitioner, right? It's like medicine is supposed to look like this. And even though I was doing Chinese medicine, I'm still pulling on all that influence of what I thought a doctor looked like from the conventional medicine side. And it's taken a lot of years of chipping away what doesn't fit. To, to find out the stuff that actually does fit. I mean, so often I keep thinking, oh, I need to add something to what I'm doing to be more effective. And sometimes it's not about adding something. It's about taking something away. It makes me think about my students. I do um, individual mentoring sessions with them. And what I've heard a lot from people is this, how painful it is to have a, a separation within oneself as a practitioner where you're acting like a serious professional on the outside, but you're crazy and secure on the inside, and how exhausting that split is for people. You know, what I should be looking like, and yet what's really going on. And, you know, and as we mature and get older, like we're able to kind of allow those personas to drop away and to have confidence in who we are, that that's that who we are is really awesome, you know, that we offer, offering ourselves as we are is really a gift. I'm thinking back to earlier in the conversation talking about not knowing and in the beautiful stance that not knowing gives us to staying open to inquiry. And how I've had patients that have landed in my office because they've been somewhere else 
And the final answer was, well, we don't know. And, and, and don't know means ending. Whereas from my point of view, don't know is not an ending. It's the beginning. And not knowing, it doesn't mean that if you have a patient and you kind of don't know exactly what their diagnosis is, if you have the question, well, is there something from my repertoire of skills, is there something I can do that would be helpful? The answer is yes. There's something I can do that I think would be helpful. Like, how, what is not is knowing, I guess, is the question. You know, not knowing exactly what herb formula is going to be like the lock in key, you know, that's going to unwind in a miraculous way. Maybe we don't know that. But if we have the question, is there something I can do that would that would really help this person right now? 100% of the time, something will come up. Yes, I can think of something to do that will be helpful. You know, and I think that's also really important. Important um, that not knowing isn't leaving us with no options, um, which is really, I think you were really right about Western medicine. Don't know means the end of the line. But for us, it doesn't mean that at all. You know, it means there are things that are blurry about the pictures, but I can still move forward in a helpful way. And gain some clarity based on the results that arise from that. Exactly, which is the wonderful thing about our medicine. But I also all this talk about not knowing and coping with failures, you know, I, I just want to make sure that it's in here too, that as we study and get better, this is such an incredibly powerful and amazing medicine. And, and my foray into understanding the classical roots of the medicine, it's also fabulously successful. And it's so worth keeping exploring how to access the power of the medicine. You know, today I think there's Western medicine, which is really miraculous, especially in the emergency medical aspect of medicine. But we we got to remember that like that's very recent. And before that, in China, this was the medicine. This was used for everything. And it, you know, has a a very rich history of being very powerful for serious illnesses. And we can access that power, um, but it, it takes contemplation and study and in order to get to that power and to be able to know when to apply it and how to get those kinds of results. You know, so I just want to make sure we're also talking about how, how successful the medicine can be as well. Right. Well, I'd like to turn to that for a moment. You know, there's the basic stuff that we all get in school, the basic TCM, and, and regardless of what opinion or stance we take on it, at least it gives us a common working vocabulary, which you can then take and, and apply in all kinds of different ways. But at least we get that common working vocabulary. It gives us a scaffolding, so to speak. We can start to hang some ideas that we maybe didn't have before you know, on a mental framework. So it lets us see the world and lets us see people and illnesses and health in different ways, which I think can be really helpful. At the same time, as you pointed out, there's some classical physiology. There's some classical ways of looking at medicine. There's, there's other streams, other viewpoints that people have used, you know, throughout the centuries to look at medicine that give us a whole different perspective on things. 
you've delved into some of that. I've had more than a few students write to me about the podcast and you know they write just to say thanks and they enjoy listening and I'm thinking to myself holy smokes you're, you're like busy studying medicine you got access to all kinds of teachers why are you listening to the podcast and I've written them back to ask them and I've gotten things back like well we're learning about things on the podcast that we don't get in school I'm thinking good I'm, you know I'm glad it's helpful since we've got you on the line right now we're talking about you know, some of the classic medicine. Have you got any suggestions for people that are maybe at the beginning of their study or maybe even recently graduated? Ways of looking at or approaching or how to approach or where to get access to some of the more classical material and why it's been helpful to you? Well, it took me a long time to realize there was something basically wrong with TCM. One really important aspect of it is that in school, we actually were not taught to diagnose. We were taught to ask a lot of questions and get a lot of information. And then we were told to come up with a diagnosis. But we weren't really taught, what do you do with that information in order to come up with a diagnosis? It was sort of, that was just left vague, you know, like, gather all the information, and then do something that will lead to a diagnosis. But what you do is not clarified. And, you know, in student clinics, students come up with all kinds of different diagnoses for the same patient. It's very vague. Diagnosis is, that we learn in a standard TCM education is, is very vague. And, you know, it's sort of like getting it over time, like, wow, I really wasn't taught how to do this. And also, you know, that the modern Chinese medicine was kind of created and it left the, you know, it's not a stream of Chinese medicine. It actually left the stream and became something different so that it could look more like Western medicine. It was kind of constructed in modern times to look more like Western medicine. You know, and there's lots of written about what happened to Chinese medicine, you know, since the 50s and, and even since before that time. And, you know, one thing I, I tell my students is, you know, that it, the modern TCM takes all these pieces that sort of sound like Chinese medicine. Um, and, you know, it's actually reorganized and it seems very organized, but I use the metaphor of, you know, it's like if you took all the, all the furniture in a house and you put the chairs in one room and the tables in another room and the beds in another room and the books in another room, it would be very organized, but it would not be functional. And that's how I see modern TCM is it's not very functional. And so we're, we're floundering around with it, trying to make sense of it. And so, you know, when I say that it left the stream, what is the stream? The stream is really connected to these universal principles and it's yin yang and the five elements and the six confirmations and TCM sort of left that. And so it's not really just one stream of Chinese medicine. You know, all the, the streams previously were all connected to the basic 
principles of yin yang and five elements you know what the classics offer us is something it's not just the classic formulas that they're amazing formulas it's uh it's that it's actually really connected to universal principles you know that's what we want to want to understand in the way that these formulas that John Jong Jing and his brilliance extrapolated on and you know who knows if he actually wrote the formulas but he definitely you know wrote an incredible text that um, describes how to use them that the whole all the six confirmations are are based on this universal principle that's about tracking the life force in the body and the six confirmations being related to the movement of the sun around the earth and how that is um, reflected in our bodies. So it's a, a really different kind of medicine than modern TCM is. And I'm not sure if I answered your question, though. <laughs> well, Sharon, it's a, it's a big question. And it's not a question that gets answered, you know, in 10 minutes. I, I think, at least for me, it's a kind of question I keep asking it of myself because it keeps me coming back to the inquiry with a with a renewed spirit and continued curiosity. You know, and I think one thing you you did ask is about resources for studying it. And, you know, I think like in my course, I get so many students that are just, I teach practitioners, you know, and they've reached that limit where they're frustrated and they want, they feel like there's something there and they're not getting it. And so, you know, they're attracted to lots of continuing education, including my program. But there's so many great things being kind of born now, you know, the teachings of uh, Arnaud Versluis and um, uh, the teachings of Feng Shirlun and, um, you know, that have these classical roots and the um, Heiner Fruhoff's teachings. There's so much that's coming out. And I think it's a really incredible movement towards something that's going to be more reliable and, and, and more connected to nature and these beautiful principles. Um, you know, so many of my students say they fell in love with the idea of Chinese medicine and they went to school and that got kind of wrecked. Um, and, you know, so I think that there's a kind of rebirth going on and each different teacher has their own sort of hit on it and they bring their own sensibilities to it but there are you know new books and new teachings available which i think is very exciting and fun to be part of as we're having this conversation i realize too that in some ways our job is as students of the medicine is to continually refine our understanding of what the medicine actually is especially in these days with, with evidence-based and integrative medicine. I mean, there's, there's a whole stream of folks that are really looking at, well, how, how do we make this work in the conventional world? And how can we actually be part of the conventional world? And, and I suspect there's a way of doing that. But then there's this other stream of, well, actually, the conventional medicine world isn't that helpful for what we do. And how can we dig deeper into you know, the, the deep well of what we've got and work with that. 
Yeah, I'm of that latter school. <laughs> yeah, I tend to be of that latter school as well, uh, which isn't to take away from those that are that are working on that integrative aspect. I'll, I'm curious to see what they come up with. It's just, it's not the thing that holds juice for me. And, you know, you were talking earlier about you going to your clinic being you. And, and I, I think that's really good advice. We should follow the stuff that lights us up. Because that, I suspect, is what sustains us through all the difficulties that we inevitably are going to encounter. Yes. Very, very well said. Well, Sharon, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us before we put a bookmark in it for the day? I would very much just like to encourage practitioners to check into classical teachings and when you check into them, be really aware of what really resonates with you. You know, if you're listening to a teacher um, or reading an article, you know, what, what really makes sense to you? And where you're reading it or you're listening to it and you're saying, yes, exactly, that really that feels good. That makes sense. That clarifies things. That's your guide. As you pursue this medicine, you know, there are lots of things out there that may not be very good or may not really suit you. And how, how do you know? You have to listen to your own body and your own resonances. And that's what I, I feel like I spent a lot of time learning how to do that. And it, it um, hasn't failed me. It's really brought me to something that feels powerful and clear and alive. And of course, that's not going to be the same as what, what does that for somebody else. But so I guess I want to just leave with, with that advice for people. Don't necessarily just uh, believe something because someone has a big name or they're saying it, you know, consider it, consider what they're saying, but always hone to your own, your own resonances and as your guide to your particular path. That sounds like wonderful and doable advice that'll take you a long way down the road. Sharon, thanks so much for your time today. This has really been a pleasure. And for me too. I really appreciate it. It's You're really fun to talk to. Well, friends, that's it for today's show. I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have. And I want to wish you well here in the brand new Year of the Pig. As the Chinese say, may all your wishes and dreams come to pass. Be sure to tune in next week. I've got a show for you with Nigel Dawes. We're going to be talking about evidence and perception and our use of paying attention to things in the clinic. Also, I want to remind you that if you'd like to help support the show, become a Chia Logician, you can do that. It's five bucks a month. It helps to keep some inspiration in the teacup over here at Geological Central. And you can go to the Geological website and do that. Get you some extra content as well. Go check it out. Again, folks, hope the new year is good for you. I'll see you next week.